Hi friends, welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. You are so welcome. And we're back today and we're going to finish off this little section in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus teaches about how to love our enemies. Now the Bible Project is a project to work through the entire Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. So why not consider making the study of the Bible part of the rhythm of your daily life by simply clicking on the subscribe button and following along each and every day as we, God willing, will eventually work through the whole Bible. But with that said, we'll drop back into the main text now, but do hang on at the end when I'll just explain a little bit more and update you on a few things. So it's bye for now. Hi folks, here we are as we're working together through the entire Gospel of Matthew, Season 3 in the Bible Project Daily Podcast. And we're going to finish off these two days we've been sitting in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48, where Jesus gives us some teaching on how to love our enemies. Now, we've arrived at the point where Jesus has told us the practical ways that we can forgive our enemies. Now, next he's going to give us two reasons why we should do this. The benefits, if you like, of forgiving and blessing those who persecute us, those who are ill-disposed to us. So we're picking it up at verse 45. And remember, this is Jesus speaking here, and he says that we should do this, that you may be children, sons of your Father in heaven. He who causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Hmm, that's unusual, isn't it? The argument here is that God is pointing out that God benefits everybody, saints and sinners alike, believers and non-believers. He just blesses everybody. He provides sunlight and he provides rain and those blessings are not based on the merits of the people but only in God's desire and what is best for the welfare of all people on this earth. Even those who have broken his law and broken his heart, God blesses everyone. The point is that we should do the same thing. We should be like God and here's the reason why we should do that and he's telling us the answer is that if we do that that we may be sons children of our father in heaven now that sounds strange I'm sure doesn't it it appears to be saying you've got to love your enemies in order to be a child of God but there are a couple of good reasons why we might want to question what this first appears to say in the surface and here's one it tells us in 1 John Chapter 1, verse 12, But as many as received him, he has given us the power to become the children of God, the sons of God, even to them that believe in his name. So you see elsewhere in the writings of the New Testament, we can see that those who embrace and believe in Jesus, receive him, have already become a child of God at that point. Now, some people get hung up on the word receive in this verse and others and say, oh, it's because people need to pray a prayer asking Jesus to come into their heart. 
Now, of course, that's a right and proper thing to do, but that's not what this verse is talking about here. The previous verse to this one, verse 11 says, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. He came to the Jewish people, and they did not welcome him. But as many as welcome him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God, even to believe in his name. So how do you become a child of God? You become a child of God by trusting Jesus Christ for the gift of eternal life. So this verse here in Matthew is not saying you've got to do this to be a child of God, but you've got to do this to be like a child of God. It is by grace we are saved, through faith, and it is not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, lest any man or woman should boast. In this Matthew verse, it's not saying you've got to love your enemies to go to heaven. You gain access to heaven by loving God, by faith. And salvation is by faith. The Bible makes that explicitly clear, not just in that 1 John 1 verse I read to you, but multiple occasions across the New Testament. In fact, some would say a whole book of the Bible is written specifically to clarify that truth. That book's called the Gospel of John, by the way, where the word believe occurs 99 times and is explained and unpacked for us dozens and dozens of times. So then what does this Sermon on the Mount verse mean? Well, look at the verse. It plainly says that you may be the sons of your father. So the verse is already acknowledging that God is our father. That came by faith. But if he is our father, and if we are already his son, his child, how do you become a son? Well, obviously, this is not saying that you do this in order to become his son, but you do it in order to be like his son. Which is why the word son is used in a number of translations, rather than the generic term child. Of course, it applies to both men and women, but the poetic scan of the verse is saying that in order to become his son, you need to be like his son. So to clarify this, the use of this term means two things. It's referring, of course, to inheritance, and a son is entitled to receive an inheritance. The natural inheritance of a son is that of its father and the natural inheritance of a son of God, a child of God, is about us becoming like him. To become a son of God by faith, you have to become like your father and you do that by imitating his son Jesus. And by doing that, will you not only do that, but he will also bless you in the doing of that. So again, he's pointing out that everyone, saints, sinners, believers, unbelievers, he blesses everyone with the general blessings of creation and the blessing of the opportunity of salvation. But this is also talking about the additional blessing of the birthright of God's children. And we, by doing what this passage has been teaching us, by being poor in spirit, by being forgiving, by being peacemakers, we demonstrate our parentage by our moral resemblance to God on this earth. So you don't love your enemies in order to become a child of God. You love your enemies because you are a child of God. And also being a child of God is that which enables you to love your enemies. This was a popular way of speaking at that time. For example, someone who was described as a son of peace was a peaceful person. So a son of God means someone who is God-like. 
In other words, by going around blessing people, particularly our enemies, we're being told that we're being like a chip off the old blocks, so to speak. We are like Jesus and we are becoming like our Father in heaven. So the first reason you should go around blessing and loving people, particularly your enemies, is because by blessing them, by doing good and by praying for them, that will make you more like God in nature. And as a bonus, by doing that, you will point some people towards God by being an example of his love. But there's a second reason. Look at verse 46. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? So he's saying by doing this, we're going to be different. What he's saying is if you just go around loving the people that already love you, just your fellow believers, your friends, your families, your children, your own people then really what kind of reward do you expect from that? Which is why he takes the example of the most despised people in that society at that time, the tax collectors. And he uses them as an example of someone who, even them who love. He says even the tax collectors love their family. You see, by using the tax collector, well, it's difficult for us today, doesn't really create an image in our mind of the most reviled person in the society, as much as it would have in Jesus' day. You see, the tax collectors in Jesus' times, they were instruments of an occupying military force, a cruel military force to that fact as well. So if we were trying to say something like this today, it would be probably would resonate more if we said something like, even a gangster loves his family. You see, the big reward comes from loving our enemies, those people in society who have offended against us. As a matter of fact, early in the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 5, verse 12, he says, Great is your reward in heaven if you do these things. There was a 4th century theologian called Augustine of Hippo, and he wrote a very interesting insight in this. He said this, To love those who love you is human. To hate those who love you is demonic. But to love those who hate you is divine. Did you get that? To love those who already love you as human. And that's what he's saying here. Even tax collectors, and for us today, even despots, gangsters, everybody does that. That's just human nature. And of course, if you take it to the other extreme, if you respond with hate to those who love you, then you're being demonic. But if you love those who hate you, then you flip the whole thing and it becomes divine. God will reward those who return evil with good. And if you know that God will specially reward you for doing that, it should be a powerful motivation for us to love other people, especially those who are our enemies. One further final little point. It's a very brief verse, but it's the conclusion. And in a sense, it draws this whole passage together. And he says in the closing verse, verse 48, Jesus says, Therefore you shall be perfect, therefore as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, if I had a pound every time someone tried to excuse themselves for doing something inexcusable by saying, well, I'm not perfect. 
Well, what he says here is God is saying that we ought to be perfect like him, to aim to be perfect like him. That's the standard. I'm amazed at how many people use this as an excuse. They flip it and use it as an excuse when they fall short. They'll say, oh, that's just me. That's just my personality. I can't help it. Now, friends, I know I'm far from perfect myself, but that does not mean I have the right to lower the standard and say that it's okay. I fall short. We all may fall short. But the standard that we're aiming for must remain. For it is God who set the standards. And God's standard is that we should be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So God is saying you are to be like him. You're not to be like you. You need to stop being like you. And you need to start becoming more like him. Now, before I get carried away a bit, I need to elaborate what this word translated perfect here means. Is it about reaching perfection in every way? Well, it is in a sense, but the word that's translated perfect could actually also be translated as mature or complete. The particular word was used for a thing that was perfect for doing what it was made for. The Greek idea of perfection was entirely functional A thing was perfect if it fully realised the purpose for which it was created, planned, designed and made. And a Christian should aim to be perfect in the same way, but only in the sense that we are perfect when we fully realise the purpose for which God has created us and sent us into the world. The word was used as a student who had reached a mature knowledge of the subject and had by today's standard graduated, if you like, as compared to a beginner or of someone who had, who was just beginning that process. So we are told to be perfect by really being spiritually mature. But within the context of the passage, we've got to realise that this is talking about being perfect by being mature in love. In this passage, we are told that we should be perfect, mature in love, and that maturity of love is ultimately expressed by loving your enemies. Therefore, being perfect, being perfect in love, is by being perfectly loving, by loving everyone, including our enemies. If you want to know from a biblical point of view what a loving person looks like, well, it's exactly the same as a spiritually mature person looks like, because they will both love their enemies, and they will both bless them that do good for them, but also bless them that don't do good for them. You see, that's the ultimate to aim for, folks. If we do that, we're at the top of Mount Everest. It doesn't get any higher spiritual teaching than that. It doesn't get any better than that as a way of living the Christian life. But like climbing Mount Everest, it's probably going to be a harder climb than any other you'll have to do in your life to reach this place, to strive towards living this way. But notice how we are told we should do this, how we should model our lives. The model should not be us. The model should be Jesus Christ, God's Son himself. I often hear people, well, constantly I hear people comparing themselves with other people. But the Bible flat out says, none of that matters. Stop doing that. The point is, the only person you should compare yourself is to God. And God is the Father who blesses you. He doesn't curse you. And he blesses you when you have offended against him by still offering to forgive you and call you home into that forgiven relationship with him. 
the God who blesses us even when we sin against him. We are trying to compare ourselves to him, his son Jesus, he sent so that he could not only be our saviour, but he could be our role model in how we should live our lives. Someone cleverer than me once wrote, the best way to destroy an enemy is to make him a friend. And I would add, better still, make him a friend, but make him a friend of Jesus also. All right, let me summarise this whole thing and I'll close this section by telling you a story, a parable if you wish. So Jesus here in this passage is saying, don't hate your enemies, love them instead. And do that by not only blessing them with your words, but by choosing to do what is best for them. That's how you really love them. And by doing that, the blessing for that for you, will you will become more God-like, more Christ-like. And that will be the basis by which God will reward you in this life and the life to come. Alfred Lord Tennyson, a famous English poet, once writing about Archbishop Thomas Cramer, who he greatly admired, said of him, To do him wrong would just initiate a kindness, a kindness from his heart that was so rich that if you held any seed of hate in your heart, he would transform it so that it blossomed into something beautiful. Now I paraphrase there, but what an amazing testimony that is to Cramer. Well, I want to close today by telling you a story, a parable if you wish. Now, the basic idea is not a new one. It's an illustration that I heard many years ago. But I've adapted it and I've tried to turn it into a parable by bringing a protagonist into the story. I do hope you find it helpful. Once, some time ago, there were two brothers and they lived on adjoining farms next to each other. You see, when the father died, because the two brothers were both married, he divided the farmland equally and fairly between them and they cooperated together and they thrived for many years. But then they had a falling out. They fell into a conflict with each other about something. No one could even remember what it was, but it created the first serious rift that they'd had in 40 years. For decades, they'd been working and farming side by side. They had shared their machinery. They traded their labor and shared their workers when emergencies needed it. They did everything they could for each other. But then following a minor disagreement, everything seemed to fall apart between them. It was a small misunderstanding, but it grew into a major difference. And finally it exploded into an exchange of bitter words that was followed by months and months of acrimony. Neither would even look at each other, never mind speak to each other. Early one morning, there was a knock at the older brother's door. He opened it to find a man standing there with long hair. He looked like a carpenter, because in fact he had a carpenter's toolbox with him. The stranger said, I'm passing through, and I'm looking for a few days of work. Perhaps I could help you by doing some small jobs. Is there any way I can be of service and can help you? The older brother said, yeah, I've got a job for you. Look across that stream that divides the land. That farmer over there, that's my neighbour's farm. In fact, it's my younger brother. Last year, there was just a beautiful meadow between us. But last week, he took his tractor and he dug a line at the main river that bypasses our land has now become a stream between us. He did that despite me, but I'm going to get one better on him. 
You see that pile of wood there over by the barn? I want you to build me a fence at least eight feet high so I won't even have to look at him anymore. The carpenter went quiet for a moment and then said, I think I understand the situation. Show me the wood and I'll be able to do the job that is required for you. So the older brother, well, he had to go away for the day. So he gave the carpenter the wood and the materials and he took the rest of the day off. At the end of the day, around sunset, the older brother returned and the carpenter had just finished his job. The older brother's eyes were wide open and his jaw dropped. There was no fence there at all. No fence had been built. Instead, the carpenter had built a bridge stretching across from one side of the stream to the other. But before he could react, he looked up and he saw his younger brother was coming across the bridge to him with outstretched arms and saying, Thank you, brother, for building that bridge, especially after all the ill I have done to you. The two brothers hugged and then they looked up to see in the far off distance heading down the road was the carpenter. You know, we all have a lot of bridges to build in our life between us and other people, and between us and God. Why not invite the carpenter, Jesus, to come and stay with you and help you build some of those bridges today and in the future? Okay, there we go, friends. That's it for today. Thank you so much for joining me. I do hope you find that teaching helpful. We'll be launching off tomorrow in a new chapter and a whole new section where Jesus will be diving in and explaining and showing what real righteousness looks like. Now, if you've joined us and this is the first time you've been with us today, can I recommend that you not only subscribe so you never miss another single episode, but if you really find it helpful, then can I suggest that you like it or share it or put a link in it on your social media accounts. That, I'm told, is the best way that we can allow other people to find this ministry and hopefully help other people and allow them to make the decision to make the study of the Bible part of the rhythm of their daily lives in the future as well. Now, it's worth just mentioning that every time I do one of these talks, the podcasts are hosted on a site called Buzzsprout. And the place that you find the actual full podcast is thebibleproject.buzzsprout.com. And within that, you'll find an episode notes page. And within that, there will always be a transcript of everything I say, which is yours to take and use copyright free in whatever way you want. Use it with my blessing and I trust the Lord's blessing. But you'll also find links there. Links to places and ways which you can connect with my ministry and also find more, uh, shall we say, structured discipleship-like Bible courses. Places like my Patreon page and my LinkedIn page and also the YouTube channel where the entire back catalogue of audios versions of this podcast will be stored and the benefit being they can be categorized there by book and by theme in these youtube playlists so if you're looking for a particular teaching from the back catalogue you'll be able to go there and find it rather than having to scroll back through hundreds and hundreds of episodes of the daily podcast 
and there's also places like the Bible Project Facebook page. So I recommend you click around those other places and have a little look. But other than that, that's it for today. I just want to say thank you so much. It's been really good to have each and every one of you here today. I hope that God has spoken to you through the study of his word. The promise of scripture is he will do. So with that in mind, I just say thanks again, and I'll see you, I trust, back here tomorrow. Well, it's tomorrow for me. Whatever day it is for you, that you open up your podcast app or wherever you get these podcasts from, and we'll launch out together again on another episode of the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye for now.